the king of karate has arrived. Welcome to my island, SpongeBob son. Oh, thank you. I, I... I am Master Udon. Howdy, Master Udon. Sandy Cheeks. I do a little karate myself. Cue the intro! <laughs> Episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast, the only podcast that will teach you karate in the worst way possible. No way, because I have nothing to teach you. Welcome aboard. My name is Captain Eric, and on this week's episode, we are covering Karate Island, the second half of the 71st episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. We're continuing our sail through the fourth season here, and this episode is a special episode as it is dedicated to the one, the only, Pat Morita, who if you are unknowing of, you have never heard of that name, you've never heard of that voice, well, then you may be familiar with some of his other appearances or his other voice work, as other than being Master Udon in this episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, Pat Morita was also the Emperor of China for the Mulan series. He was also Arnold, the second chef to take over the Arnold's establishment in the old sitcom Happy Days, that's a, a dated reference there, but he is most well-known for his role as Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid series, a legendary role that would take Pat Morita from just comedic actor, well-known in the television space, to a legendary actor in Hollywood, whose voice and talent would then be used across the board in many different works, including... As you can tell today, SpongeBob SquarePants. So it's an honor to talk about Mr. Marita here. So we'll get into that. We have a lot to cover. If I have any martial arts fans out there, or if you are unfamiliar with the world of martial arts, I am sure you've heard the name of Bruce Lee. And surprising, I mean, unsurprisingly, with an episode called Karate Island. We may be talking about Bruce Lee, but unsurprisingly, you may not be aware of how much Bruce Lee has impacted this episode. And I'm not even talking about the yellow jumpsuit, which, of course, is a common reference to one of Bruce Lee's most iconic films. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but before we dive into the episode, I want to mention this past week was the launch of SpongeBob SquarePants' The Cosmic Shake across all platforms, developed by Purple Lamp Studios and published by THQ Nordic. The game so far has been a pleasure. And so far, I've had the opportunity of unboxing the BFF edition, which is live on the YouTube channel right now. So shameless plug to youtube.com slash at the Captain Eric and check out that unboxing. One of my favorite unboxings and... I love how those are continuing on. So I'm a fan of, of doing unboxings and that style of um, out-of-camera work and showing off some stuff, that'll continue on in other showcases beyond just unboxing items. So if you are a fan of that stuff or you at least like the atmosphere, um, always a relaxing and chill mode is what I'm going for here on the Captain Herrick YouTube channel. So if you like that, definitely stick around. 
But beyond unboxing the game and having that video up, I live streamed with a few of you early Tuesday morning, uh, both in a test stream to test out all of the new equipment that I had running alongside some gameplay of SpongeBob SquarePants Monopoly, an older PC game that was made by Hasbro. And that went well. And once the Cosmic Shake was unlocked on Steam, installed, I went over to play the game and I have a complete playthrough of at least up to the end of the first level, the whole Western jellyfish fields aesthetic. That whole experience is on the YouTube channel as well. It's not in the general videos tab. If you are on the YouTube channel, you can look over at the live streams uh, tab, click on that, and you'll see both testing the Cosmic Shake and then actually chilling in the Cosmic Shake. And I actually plan on playing through the game in chunks, live, through streams, and even if one or two of you are watching, the way that I am going about these live streams or the way that I used to play games with my friends, especially if there was a single-player game at hand. You sit there, and you're playing with your friends on your couch. So, if it's one person watching me play, I've been accustomed to my best friend watching me play games, and vice versa, and sitting there and watching him. And if you are into live streaming, you know, gaming at all, you understand that aesthetic very well. So, I appreciate each and every one of you who check out those live streams. If you have any suggestions anything at all, you can reach me at either nickelodeonhistory at gmail.com or spongepodpodcast at gmail.com, P-O-D podcast. That is the email specific for this show, Nickelodeon History, of course, being more general Nickelodeon. But either way, those are two emails that you can get in contact with Captain Eric. Appreciate your time on that. Now on to the karate. Karate Island, the second half of the 71st episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, first premiered on May 12, 2006. It was storyboard directed by Casey Alexander and Chris Mitchell, who wrote this episode alongside Stephen Banks. Our animation director is Tom Yasumi, our technical director is Vincent Waller, and our supervising producer is Paul Tibbet. Ah! Now, we're going to take a step back in time and go back to the year 2006. This episode premieres. I remember watching it, and I enjoyed it. I kind of caught a few of the specific references to martial arts films in the episode, but I'm not going to sit there and act that at my age of that time, I knew every single point that they were trying to make here. But this was the ultimate karate episode. If you were a fan of any of the previous Sandy Spongebob karate shenanigans that they had in Bikini Bottom, this was almost the pinnacle of it. Even though there are things about this episode I, I personally don't like that I'll get into that I've, you know, I, I can still look at and say, hey, at least by the end things are, are fine. Um, it has nothing to do with any of the karate elements at hand. What you see in this episode is... Clearly, a love and appreciation for the karate martial arts film genre, not only in just the references visually, but it's astonishing in its reference entirely of, of what it is actually paying homage to. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything as of yet, but what I want to start out with, take you back in time, the year 2006, this premieres, I love it. It's a great karate episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. 
Later that year, from November 9th to November 10th, 2006, Nickelodeon treated us to what is known as the best day ever. If you are familiar with SpongeBob SquarePants, one of the most synonymous songs to the character is that of his best day ever. It's a song that first appeared on the SpongeBob SquarePants movie soundtrack, and I was rocking out to that song two years before there was an episode all about it. Not only that, there was the best day ever episode. There was an entire marathon, an entire day surrounding SpongeBob SquarePants devoted to the yellow sponge 24 hours. No Nick at night, no other Nicktoons, no other Nick shows, 24 hours of SpongeBob SquarePants arranged in apparently a fan-voted method that would all lead up to this brand new episode, Best Day Ever, following that, the television premiere of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Wow. Not really that big of a deal if you are not a television watcher, but for someone like me, hey, that was a fun time. That was something to look forward to. And we'll have more to talk about the Best Day Ever marathon when we actually talk about the Best Day Ever episode. But the reason I'm bringing it up here is that Karate Island surprisingly was apparently voted number one of this marathon and was the lead-in episode to the best day ever. Now at the time, when I saw that pop up, because there was a wait to see what would be number one, what's the number one best SpongeBob SquarePants episode, and then it's Karate Island, which no disrespect to anyone who worked on that episode, but it was genuinely surprising to have come up as the number one SpongeBob episode at that time. This is middle of season four, and we have all of the, what is called the golden era of SpongeBob SquarePants available, and what is voted on is Karate Island, which six years later in the UK, a very similar SpongeBob marathon would occur, the top 100, with Karate Island reaching number 73, so time certainly wasn't nice to this episode. But that's not true, because I have to tell you, as I have grown up, this is a prime example of an episode that I've grown up with and that I've gone to appreciate a lot more than I did as a child. There aren't many SpongeBob episodes up to this point that I could look at and say that my opinion has drastically changed over a decade or two. There are some that, you know, slightly here or there, little nuances, little things that I might not even mention on this podcast that they're so, so intricate, eh, not even going to mention it here as to why I might like or dislike something a little bit different. It's like a 1% change. I can't even explain it more than half the time. But I could tell you that although I may still have some shock if this was to be voted number one again, I would still have a greater appreciation for the episode than I did half my life ago, which is crazy to think about. Wow. What are you doing, Captain? Anyway, so (laughs) I'm doing fine. I'm making a really fun podcast with myself, and hopefully those who listen out there enjoy it. 
and maybe one day the skills I'm working on here lead into something else that's prosperous. Who knows? So I don't want to down myself there. Anyway. It would be impossible to talk about any of the content of this episode without acknowledging that this is, up to this point, the greatest title card in SpongeBob SquarePants history. That's one thing I'll give Karate Island the number one on off the bat. Number one title card. We've had great title cards in the past. Wonderful title cards that elicit a certain emotion as you're going into the episode with its color choice, music choice. There's a lot that goes in to the art of a title card. And this does get extra points because this is our first moving title card. The Karate Island jettisons into frame as if it's karate chopping right into place. Beautiful. Couldn't ask for a better start to this episode. When we actually start the episode proper, SpongeBob is waxing Gary and his shell. We actually get a look at the inside of Gary's shell and very much like the Doctor's TARDIS, the size on the outside does not justify the size on the inside. And it's so large, in fact, that SpongeBob is able to be in there with Gary as well, even finding a novelty tea from his past that's been lost in this massive shell. We hear a doorbell ring where SpongeBob, you know, knows it's somebody at the door, but as he leaves Gary's shell... The mailman is already in his home. And I had a problem with this. I had a massive problem with this. What is this guy doing walking into SpongeBob's house? What? Hello? There's a door right there. You're just letting yourself in? Does the Bikini Bottom mailing service not follow the same guidelines as most of the other mailing services in the world? Unless this is a regular practice where a mailman can just enter your home and be like, here you go. I guess if you don't have a mailbox or you have an arrangement set up, maybe SpongeBob and this guy have a thing where, hey, if I don't answer that door, you can just come in and leave the mail inside. That could be a thing. But I was a little weirded out by that. So the mailman drops off a special package for SpongeBob SquarePants. And in that package is a brick. What is this? Oh, SpongeBob puts this brick inside of this machine. It eats the brick. Oh, it's playing a tape. Oh, oh I already gave it away. I know what it is. Uh, for those who don't know what this is, and I'm only explaining it because knowing how older this episode is and how physical media has changed for an entire younger generation who may not even know DVDs. What? Why are you giving me this disc? Shout out to all those parents out there who had to buy and rebuy and rebuy discs that their kids would scratch and break. Now that streaming is around and none of that has to be a problem, my heart goes out to you. But in the lineup of how we watch movies, today's day and age, of course, is mainly really streaming. And still alongside of that is disc media, which is ever-growing in, in new ways. Right now it's 4K, UHD, ultra-high definition discs. Before that, it was Blu-ray. Right around that area, you also have HD, DVD, but we don't really talk about that. Before that, we have DVD, which was the predecessor right before Blu-ray. Before DVD, though, it was VHS 
through and through. There were, of course, other pieces of home media alongside of the era of VHS. Many different companies trying to throw their hat in that court. Laserdisc and Betamax. And there are certain nuanced beauties to all of these other kinds of uh, physical media. RCA disc. There's a few other ones. I'm a nerd for that stuff. I love older physical media. Um, but VHS was the dominant force for a couple of decades. Even at the moment that this episode was being produced, 2004, 2005, it would make more sense to mail out possibly a VHS tape to someone in the world than it would a DVD. Not everyone had DVDs at this point in time. There were still friends of mine that still would have to rent VHS tapes, and there were still VHSs of certain movies being released around this time, so it's not out of the ballpark for Spongebob to have received a VHS tape at this time. On this tape, which he puts in his VHS player, or VCR, wherever you uh, wherever you are, wherever you come from, either way, places the tape in the machine, and what plays on his television is one of the most bizarre sequences of live-action video to other moments of animation that we've had happen up to this point in SpongeBob's history. Season 4, I think so far, takes the cake in these really out-there sequences. I mean, from everything that we've seen in Ghost Host to now this. I mean, SpongeBob has quite the uh, library of tapes that he's uh, gaining. He has that self-help tape that is already a, a trip, and now he has this one, which is just baffling. If you're watching the video version of this, I'll have some sort of playthrough of that video of uh, of what happens on the screen just playing as, as I'm talking. But we have shots of crowds of people. Oh, hold on. Oh, we have a little, little SpongeBob message there. This is, at the beginning of the tape, we get the Karate Island title card that we saw at the beginning of this episode. It replays pretty much verbatim at the beginning of this tape, which you would think may be a first for SpongeBob SquarePants in its history of a title card appearing in an actual episode. But in fact, Krabby Land was the first episode where its title card actually then physically appeared in the episode. So a little piece of trivia there for you. So we have the Karate Island logo. SpongeBob is being announced as the king of karate, and he's being invited to Karate Island. We get shots of this island, shots of a flower opening up, a guy karate kicking the camera, a, a train uh, collision, a crowd of people looking at something. Action! More karate footage. Uh, Self-defense class footage. And now SpongeBob being announced as the king of karate. We have the fish narrator, or the fish announcer that we usually see on the newscasts, a part of this uh, video package. So I, I have no idea if his services are just outsourced to whoever pays him, you know, as if he was on Fiverr or one of those services, and he's both on the news, and, oh, you need somebody in your uh, your video scam service? Yeah, I'll, I'll be in it. There's a robot voice for SpongeBob SquarePants, meaning that this tape probably gets mass-produced and sent out to many people. And I'm surprised that they sent it to SpongeBob 
with knowledge that, of course, he loves karate, and they didn't end up sending one to Sandy. That seemed weird, but maybe they also knew they wouldn't be able to fool Sandy as much as they would SpongeBob, as we would come to find out. SpongeBob is over the moon at being called King of Karate. He has received many trophies before. He has been called winner many times in his life. But to be king of something, this is a new a new ordeal for SpongeBob. I will make comment that some of the karate that SpongeBob shows off in his house is very stiff, and I don't know if that was done on purpose. It seems like the model of the sponge doesn't want to move or bend as much as it used to. I don't know if anyone notices that in this episode or if it's a, a season thing that I'm not noticing. But the philosophy I always knew of when it came to designing SpongeBob is that although the sponge itself can squash and stretch as much as it wants, the only thing that has to stay its shape is the pants. So with some of these karate movements here, I don't know, they're not as expressive as I would like. And I know, I know in saying that, there are certain people, fans of modern-day SpongeBob of 2020, 2023, that time frame, where SpongeBob may be a little bit over-expressive, just even walking to the refrigerator. Simple, simple movements every single second has to be uh, an exaggerated, funny look. And there are those out there in the animation community who really feel that philosophy when it comes to cartoons. Every single frame should be funny. Or every single time their face is on screen or their body should be completely different or there should just be something off-model. And there's truth to that, but it has to be done in a sparing way. Those times that SpongeBob or Patrick... When they stick out in your head and they are off-model, those most likely are from moments where it was from an episode where they didn't have a ton of that. And there's a nice balance there. When an episode, and I will say there's a clip going around right now of the Salty Sponge, where SpongeBob has a job at the uh, Salty Spittoon, and the animation in this one clip I saw online, it's on my Twitter, I favorited it. I, I said something about it. It was a beautiful combination of keeping SpongeBob on model, keeping that sponge together, and then for those times where he's supposed to just burst out and, it, you know, the sponge is supposed to squash and stretch, it, it felt like a nice little even pace at this moment. And I like what I'm seeing. So if you are a, a modern-day SpongeBob fan, don't think that, you know... I'm, I'm of anybody who's on, like, strictly one side or the other. I do think that there's a happy medium here. And although I just feel like in this karate moment he was a little bit stiff, like I said, it could have been done to showcase where, although SpongeBob is decent at karate, it's just to further show how far off he is from Sandy's skills. And speaking of Sandy, she is pretty much right outside of the pineapple as SpongeBob runs out of his house, heading off to Karate Island. He wouldn't have even went to Sandy's tree dome to talk to her about this. He would have went right to that island without her. And he is lucky. He ran into Sandy Cheeks, who once hearing about Karate Island is immediately skeptical at the idea, as her herself being as good as karate as she is, has never been invited to this place once. And then here's Spongebob 
not only being invited to Karate Island, but to be crowned King of Karate, which really irks Sandy. This is a moment where we get to see a little bit more of Sandy's emotional range. She's jealous. She is jealous. She's a little bit perturbed at the way that SpongeBob is boasting about this seemingly just gifted goal. It's not like he was yearning to be something like King of Karate. He was just handed a crown. Here you go. Come and get it. But he was overacting this entire episode like an entitled brat. And it's completely reasonable as to why Sandy would be so frustrated with SpongeBob. I do think the jealousy part is something that we would all need to get over in ourselves. If you know you're good at something and someone else is gifted an arbitrary award for the same thing, you know, I go by the thought process of the Macho Man Randy Savage. The cream rises to the top. You have nothing to worry about. Keep working at your stuff. Keep doing you. If you are truly better at something, you will be noticed in time. It takes time. It's never instant. But the more you are showcasing what you have, the more likely it is that more people will see it, share it around. Eventually, you'll find yourself with an audience. So that's what I would say in Sandy's whole situation with this. But uh, they head off to Karate Island. We don't get to see them board this boat or where they take off to. It's a quick cut pretty much to them arriving to the destination of Karate Island. I love the idea that the second SpongeBob and Sandy are getting off of this boat, it sinks. It sets in this little unsettling nature of what is to happen in the ongoing Karate Island. This doesn't really look like a Karate Island other than the giant neon sign directing you that it is, in fact, Karate Island. And right on the beach is where we meet Master Udon, voiced by the irreplaceable Pat Morita, who was born on June 28th, 1932. He was born with the name Noriyuki Morita, but of course changed his first name to Pat and went by that for, I believe, most of his acting career, although... There was one producer I was looking into who tried to get him to go by his his birth name, as it would sound more ethnic, which, in such a just terribly funny way, on the same, same coin, the other side, how many actors during this time in Hollywood had to change their birth names to get work? Actors, musicians, stand-up comics, you would have to just... Come up with a name, which would get you more gigs, get that foot in the door, because you knew your skills were good enough to carry that weight. Once your foot was through that door, it didn't matter what ethnicity you were or what color your skin was. At that point in time, it was about what skills you brought to the art. So I I have no idea why Pat went by that name. But he was known professionally as Pat Morita for his entire career, as far as I know. Before his film role as Mr. Miyagi, he was well known, as mentioned earlier, as the second Arnold in Happy Days, a man who takes over the popular eating establishment, Arnold's, and decides to just adopt 
that first name instead of changing the sign because Takahashi would have cost more than to just keep the uh, Arnold neon sign up. So he became a recurring character on Happy Days, a very popular comedic sitcom for its time in the mid-70s. And I'll tell you, the Fonz is still one of the coolest characters to ever appear on television. Hey! And Arnold was a continuing character throughout the show up until its final season, season 11, after which he was vying for the role of Mr. Miyagi, which he was not the first choice off the bat. Toshohiro Mufuni, or Mufune, I'm sorry if I butcher that, was an actor who was originally chosen to portray Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid movie. He was a fantastic choice, but the actor did not speak English, which of course would arise with this with this film that they were working on, and Pat kept going for this role. He auditioned for the role and tested it five plus times before finally the producer realized that he went from seeing him as just a comedic actor that appeared on television. Pat grew out his beard a little bit, adopted a different accent that he he got from his uncle. And that moment, when that producer saw this character, he saw Mr. Miyagi. He saw the, the character they were looking for this whole time and offered him the role personally. A role that would go on to define Pat's career, earning him his first... Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor alongside a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Karate Kid. Of course, that series lives on to this day. I don't have to tell you the legacy of The Karate Kid. Cobra Kai is one of the most popular reboot remake shows, I would think, in, in Hollywood history. It's got to make the top 10 of series coming from a, a long dormant Series like The Karate Kid being remade for a new audience and gaining an entire new appreciation for this world. That's, that's crazy. I haven't seen that very, uh, very often in my lifetime. So congratulations to those who worked on that show. A lot of dedication clearly went to it. Pat portrayed Mr. Miyagi in four of the original Karate Kid films, parts one, two, and three. The next Karate Kid, in which he moved on from Daniel LaRusso and started uh, teaching a young Hillary Swank as the next Karate Kid, before moving on into the role of Mike Wu, the grandfather of Shelby Wu, of course, of the mystery files of Shelby Wu. The Nickelodeon show from the 90s, from 1996 to 1999, four seasons of the mystery files of Shelby Wu aired on the channel. And the thing about Pat is, of course, he had all this experience working with Daniel LaRusso, and already being one of the best guardians you could ask for. But being on Nickelodeon, being a young age and watching this guy, he was up there with James Avery and John Goodman in my eyes of, I know you're an actor, and I know you're acting, and I know that that's fake, but there are certain things about being a caring person that you can't fake. And that you can see happen right before your eyes, and you can feel that. It's it's something, it's, it's so slight, you can't, like I said, it's unteachable. You can't point to it and go, that's what you have to copy. You just have to be. That's just it. I know that sounds a little hippie-ish, but 
If you are, you are. If you're not, you're not. I'm not saying that every single actor, you know, who sits down with their kid next to him and gives him a sappy talk is, that's not what I'm talking about. There's something deeper here. When you look at a person's eyes, when you look how an actor is is thinking about what to do next, and these actors are supposed to be pulling from experiences, but there's just something genuine that comes along with not only just being a good person that you can feel from off the screen, but also knowing that the characters that are with them are are in the best place possible. You know, Danny LaRusso was not with a dad or a mom or a family member, but you knew he was 110% safe with someone like Mr. Miyagi in that world. And in the same way, watching the mystery files of Shelby Wu, Mike Wu and the way Pat portrayed that character, he was one of those those guardians on television that you would look at and go, that's, that's one I trust. And boy, did I trust him. He didn't let me down. I don't think there's a, a crass word said about Pat Morita in Hollywood. At least that hasn't been said. Everyone has been pretty mums the word on any of the dirt of, of Pat, which says a lot in that business because you will see that the second you're, you're away from the spotlight, People can throw throw you right under the bus or throw your name in certain situations that are not really savory. I don't think I have ever heard of a bad mention, a bad meetup, a bad time on set of, of Pat Morita. He is certainly missed in the world of, of acting. The world in general, he is missed. He unfortunately passed away. On November 24th, 2005, at the year of 73, and he was such a workhorse that there are so many pieces of animation, video games, and other movies and short films that came out posthumously after he passed away that he was just clearly working, possibly up until he couldn't and the wheels fell off, and... That makes me love him even more. You know, just not that that's expected of of anybody. There should be a point in time that you go, hey, I'm done. It's all right. I don't want to work anymore or do anything. And you can enjoy yourself and, and relax. This man was working. He was not stopping. So this episode was released and dedicated in his honor, which if you watch on TV currently is missing the, the final screen that shows off. Pat, but if you watch this episode on Paramount Plus or you own it on DVD, the in memory of part is still intact to this episode. Master Udon, who with that voice just oozes being trustworthy, but his overall design of a character is very shifty. It feels like there is something clearly going on here. Sandy is in the right for feeling suspicious from the beginning of this entire ordeal, but there is something about Master Udon that is calming. It, there is a specific reason as to why they brought in Pat for this role. It's perfect. And I have no problem in saying that he completely steals the show in this episode. Carolyn Lawrence kills it as Sandy, and it's one of Sandy's best episodes, but there is something about Master Udon and a Pat Morita. It might be my specific love for the guy and his roles, but I, I have to say that even if you have no idea 
of Pat or any of those movies, there is still something about this character that is so intriguing, you can't take your eyes off of him. He welcomes the two to Karate Island, and he wants to see a demonstration of King SpongeBob's karate skills. He sends in three goons who are clearly bait-and-switch. They are meant to portray that they are going to be tough, but SpongeBob defeats them with ease, and I have to imagine that the first guy and the way he was taken down was a reference to the finger poke of doom that happened in WCW all the way back in 1999. One of the most infamous episodes of WCW Monday Night Nitro, and I'll give you the quick little TLDR right here because this is certainly a moment in wrestling history. One wrestling company, both both airing at the same time on Monday nights, this was known as the Monday Night Wars of WWE's Monday Night Raw, which was known at the time as WWF, and WCW's Monday Night Nitro. Um, at the time, this exact date, January 4th, 1999, where WWF Raw was airing a taped episode of Monday Night Raw, it wasn't live 100% of the time in this era, and they were airing a taped episode, whereas WCW was live. Monday Nitro was live, and during this era, to spite the other wrestling company, they would just read the results of what happens on the other show so that you don't have to change the channel. It was smart up until this day, where the episode of Monday Night Raw that was airing on the other network happened to be the episode in which Mick Foley, as Mankind, was winning the WWF World Heavyweight Championship from The Rock, a massive feel-good moment where millions of people changed the channel. And if you happened to be staying on WCW Nitro, you were left with the finger poke of doom. If you were watching Nitro throughout the entire show, you were advertised a match of Goldberg, the unbeatable force of Goldberg taking on WCW champion Kevin Nash, a Weasley kind of champion at this point in time. Although, earlier in the night, Goldberg found himself in handcuffs, arrested and booked in the local jail of whatever town they were in, then putting the entire WCW championship match in jeopardy. So you have this entire show where they're advertising this match still as happening at the end. Goldberg is still going to get his match somehow. And Kevin Nash is not going to get away from this. And at the zero hour, another person steps in to challenge Kevin Nash. It's Kevin Nash's old friend and rival, Hulk Hogan. I'll take you on, brother. And he pokes Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash falls to the ground. And in three seconds, the match is over. Wait a minute, what? Hulk Hogan is now WCW champion, and it seems like they were in cahoots all along with one another as they reformed or put together back their classic stable, the NWO, and this was a ploy from the entire beginning. They purposely had Goldberg put in jail and purposely put on this match so they could keep the gold in the NWO, but Kevin Nash still 
looked like a massive chump on television. And what was known as the finger poke of doom happened at the same time, pretty much the same night as mankind, a beloved wrestler, Mick Foley, one of the most beloved wrestlers in the history of that business, winning his first championship. One of the best feel-good moments in the history of wrestling. And millions of people switched over to the other network in no due part to the way WCW handled their little rivalry there. And who won in the end? I think you know the answer to that one. But the way that this first goon went down with just the finger poke has to be a right. It just has to. If it's not, then, all right, they just decided he would go down with a poke and it's me projecting a wrestling reference into this, but it just reminded me of that. He easily takes down the other two guys, not as hilariously as the first, but Sandy can clearly see that this is all something that's wrong. There's something going on here. Why did they send SpongeBob this tape? Why are they calling him King of Karate when he's good but not as good? Why are they faking these actors to come in and take these pratfalls for SpongeBob? What is happening? Sandy is suspicious, but she continues to follow this charade as they move on into the throne room. Right outside of their massive building, they have this little hut where a throne is set up for SpongeBob to sit on for the King of Karate. They also make a seat for Sandy. I love the, the visual gag of just having a lawn chair brought out right next to this. I mean, it's a nicer looking throne than a lawn chair, but it's not that much nicer than a lawn chair. It's a piece of wood you're sitting on with a woven backing. Of course, you know, of course, there's one I would rather sit in over the other, but I'm not going to sit here and act like this is just a solid gold throne. This is a very cheaply made facade that they put together. In this moment, Sandy and SpongeBob have another tiff at one another. SpongeBob still boasting about his kingship. I would put on a little bit of a, of a comedic flair if I was ever made king of something, but I certainly wouldn't want to rub it into my friends if it was especially something they were also into. I certainly wouldn't want to rub that in, but SpongeBob, I guess, has no problem. He should be used to winning. We've had episodes where we've seen the amount of times that SpongeBob has earned trophies. He should be a little bit more humble, and I have no idea why in this situation he decides he's just going to turn that off. But Sandy leaves, and Sandy hilariously, even without that boat, decides, I'm just going to walk away from Karate Island through the muck back to Bikini Bottom. It's a bold strategy, and I guess with her air helmet, she could just trek under the, the muck there and make her way back without a boat. It is certainly a trek I wouldn't want to make, but I uh, I have kudos to Sandy for that one. While she's leaving, she hears the screams of SpongeBob SquarePants as he is locked into the chair, the throne that he sat in, and brought to the top of the tower, where Master Udon is holding him to see if Sandy can make it to the top. There's something else going on. There's something sinister. He pulls a pen out of his out of his coat, but it's not enough to tell you what is actually happening at the top of Karate Island. This is where Bruce Lee comes into play, and I'm sure you're thinking strictly because of Sandy's outfit. Yes, Sandy's outfit is, of course, a reference to Bruce Lee's 
iconic yellow jumpsuit that he used in his final film. But there's an asterisk next to that. There's a lot we have to cover here. For those that have no idea who Bruce Lee is, he is one of the greatest martial artists to ever be in front of a camera. That's at least what I can say. There may be others out there who just have never been seen by the public eye, but for the filmography of the martial arts world, Bruce Lee is still considered one of, if not the greatest, to ever step foot in front of a camera and even off of the camera when it comes to his actual martial arts skills. There is reasons that he is featured as a playable character in some of the current UFC games. From some accounts, Bruce Lee was an absolute master when it came to some of these martial arts skills and what he was able to do. There are stories in abundance of Bruce Lee and his work and the legacy he left behind. But for what we are talking about today, we are talking about his final film, something that has been referenced throughout so many pieces of pop culture, media, video games, movies, TV shows, even beyond his yellow jumpsuit aesthetic. The Game of Death was a movie that Bruce Lee was working on and had filmed a few fight scenes for, which included a fight scene with his student Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's right, the NBA player. The thing with the Game of Death, though, is while he was working on this film, he was offered the role of a lifetime as Warner Brothers came in producing, at the time, a budget that was unprecedented for a martial arts film, $850,000. They wanted to make this movie, and they wanted Bruce Lee at the forefront of it. So, in this moment, Bruce had no choice. This was the moment of a lifetime, the role of a lifetime for, for his special set of skills. And that's where Enter the Dragon comes in. Enter the Dragon, possibly the most famous martial arts movie of all time, one of the most profitable movies of all time, directed by Robert Klaus, it was made on a budget of $850,000 and made over $400 million at the box office in 1973, which in today's numbers is about $2 billion. That is Avatar numbers. That is Avengers numbers. That right there shows you how popular Bruce Lee and even the martial arts genre was getting at that time. So Bruce Lee... Films enter the dragon and heads back to film the game of death, but unfortunately is unable to finish that film and passes away, I believe, to kidney failure. Something in his system went down, and unfortunately the world lost one of the greats, one of the greats of his, of his art. But he certainly would not be forgotten. Bruce Lee lives on to this day and will forever be remembered for the work he left. The Game of Death, though, still had a lot of decent footage left on the cutting room table, especially of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bruce Lee pitted up against one another. Almost the final boss there, an incredible piece of footage. They had a decent chunk of this film finished, but they couldn't finish it in its original form. There's an original story 
to the game of death that takes Bruce Lee's character, where a group of martial artists come to him and ask him, hey, we're trying to break into this five-floor facility, and at the top of it is some sort of stolen treasure, and we want to retrieve it. There's no guns allowed. It's all fists and everything with martial arts. Bruce Lee's character says, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this. So to force him to go along with this, they kidnap his younger brother and sister and trap them up at the top of the facility at the fifth floor alongside whatever treasure is up there. I have no idea how that was happening, but either way, this was the impetus to Bruce Lee's character going into this five-floor gauntlet alongside this other team, and that was essentially the movie. Some of the fight scenes, three of the floors were filmed and edited together, but nothing else of the movie was really worked on and finished, especially the end result as Lee, as far as we know, has never written down or mentioned what the end result was going to be, what the treasure was. There really wasn't anything worked on beyond what they finished. And unfortunately, even with all of these great martial arts fight scenes filmed, there was no story around them. There was no way to create this story. So they got together, Robert Klaus, the director of Enter the Dragon, and made an entirely new story around getting to those pieces of footage of Bruce Lee fighting those three floors. So for this new version of The Game of Death, which is the one most have seen, takes an actor of martial arts films, a nice little nod to Bruce Lee in a way, and a group very similar to the original idea of The Game of Death would come to him, ask for his services, he would decline, and instead of a kidnapping in this movie, they would try to kill him. And of course they failed. But he was able to fake his death and also go under the knife, have plastic surgery to look different so that he could head over to the five-story restaurant they're at and elicit revenge on those who tried to wrong him. In this method, they were able to have a different actor come in, fill in most of the front of Game of Death leading up to somebody going into a five-story building or any story building and fighting a gauntlet of other martial artists in an attempt to get to the top. And it's in these scenes, Bruce Lee's actual scenes, is where he dons that classic yellow jumpsuit, which, of course, Sandy dons in this episode. But this entire episode is a retelling of that original version of Game of Death. SpongeBob is kidnapped at the top of this building, now Sandy, donning a yellow jumpsuit, goes in and fights these martial artists floor by floor, reaching the top. And all of these, in a way, are wonderful extra little characters that we have here. The French Tickler, I have to mention, I don't know if anyone has caught this, but it was very common throughout the early years of martial arts films where the dubbing of these movies weren't done with as much care as we would do with content today. So the words that would come out of 
An actor's mouth would certainly not match what you're hearing coming out of the TV screen or movie screen. You would hear an English voice, but then you would still see the lips of the character kind of move a little bit because they were obviously not speaking English. So a little bit of that was adapted here in the French Tickler fight scene. He is the first in this gauntlet of characters that Sandy has to face, and his weakness is jelly donuts, although when Sandy pulls these jelly donuts out, has anyone out there ever seen grape jelly donuts, but they're eclairs with the chocolate icing on the top? Like, essentially, it's an eclair, but instead of the Bavarian cream, it's jelly-filled. I have never seen that with the chocolate. I haven't ever had that offered to me. Uh, what a fight scene that, that she has. But all of these fights, she ends up winning without the use of karate, which should tell you a little bit more about Karate Island and what's going on here. It's It's not karate. None of these characters know karate. There is a tickler. There's someone here with huge lips, massive lips that get dried out with uh, with Sandy's blow dryer that she just somehow has on her. Like, I know it came in handy. I'm able to realize that, but it's a little weird to just have that on you at all times. I love that when Sandy came up the stairwell into the next floor, we're into a padded room which is already a little weird. But the art of the stairwell, for anybody going back and watching this episode, I want you to pause it once Sandy exits the stairwell, she's in the padded room, and just look at the art of the stairwell going down. That's just a piece of incredible art I noticed while uh, re-watching this episode. Lip Service is the second member of this gauntlet, a character with these massive lips who once they are dried out from Sandy's hairdryer, break up into little pieces, like little tiny rocks in front of the character. And it's one of the most just heartbreaking, gut-wrenching sequences of these lips caving off of this character's face. And then what they're left with is all the gums. And it's, it's gross. And just to add insult to injury, the fact that that lip service tries to pick up this mound of lip and just place it on her face. It's hilarious. Kudos to the crew on that one. The third floor is occupied by Filthy Phil. Hey, boss. No, no thank you. No thank you. Not this time. Um, Filthy Phil is just this fat mound of a creature, this sluggish-looking individual who lives in this grease trap, this walled room where it's just grease or some sort of liquid substance coming down from the walls. It is so disgusting. Although Phil makes one of the most clever SpongeBob jokes I've heard in a long time where he says, no one passes except me. And if you can quickly get that and understand that reference it'll make you chuckle I, I would think but Phil is unable to have his stench penetrate through Sandy's uh, air helmet which she is still wearing and therefore the stink which I'm sure at this point would normally get someone to exit the room is now going back right into Phil's face causing him to just pass out he's done Sandy was able to defeat 
all of these karate masters in different ways that had nothing to do with karate. And they're not even karate masters. Once we get to the top, though, we do meet someone who is a little bit more into karate than all of those we have met before time. Master Udon is at the top of this tower. Just like Mortal Kombat, Sandy has made it to the top. Another, another little reference to Game of Death there. But Sandy has made it, and it is now time to face Master Udon. Although, Master Udon finally unleashes his plan of what Karate Island is, why they're here, and what is going to happen to them. You see, the idea of Karate Island is a massive timeshare scam. It is a scam to enlist individuals to come to this island, sit through a meeting to see the benefits of owning a timeshare, owning a condo, which I happen to have owned a condo in my past, and it is not the worst thing ever. It's not a timeshare, although I think most timeshares, if not all of them, are technically condos as well. There's there's something with the timeshare where I know it sounds like an attractive deal and the idea of them is to get you to think of like, hey, could you imagine having your own personal private vacation spot every single year and it's a comforting piece of, of you, it's a piece of your home, you own it alongside all these other people. It's essentially a bunch of people all agreeing to help pay for this place and they all sign up for their specific weeks or two weeks or whatever. It sounds attractive, and South Park did it well where they will throw everything at you to stick in these meetings and to sign up for timeshares. There's that episode that takes place in Aspen that's all about timeshares that just, the second this episode happened, I couldn't not think of that. Anytime I think of timeshares, it's Aspen and then Karate Island. But either way, the idea is the same. These individuals getting you in a room, showing you all the financial benefits, all the cool stuff, not any of the negatives, and just relentlessly throwing you free things or experiences so that you almost feel obliged to give in. Oh, you've given me so much, therefore I need to sign up for this terrible possibility in my life. And that's what Master Udon is here for. It's not Karate Island he's worried about, it's Condo Island. Real estate is where the money at's, baby. And Master Udon traps Sandy in a mousetrap-like cage. He has SpongeBob locked up, and now he has two people he can pitch his timeshare business to. Unfortunately for Master Udon, Sandy is a master of karate and is able to use the energy of her meditation to burst through this cage. And what ends up happening is one of the best fight scenes in SpongeBob SquarePants history. There have been some scuffles, some good punches, some pieces of violence here and there, but in terms of a actual drawn-out fist fight matchup between two characters, Sandy and Master Udon, it's a good one. I've appreciated this matchup a lot more as I've grown older, and of course in the end, Sandy completely takes out this karate master of timeshares. I honestly have no idea on if my first watch through on this, I was able to catch on the little nuances before, like when Master Udon takes out the pen that would 
lead this towards the condo timeshare scam. But once that popped up, it was immediately hilarious. Iconic. It's an iconic moment. And the muscles that they put on both Sandy and Master Udon for this matchup, it's as if when you first saw Master Roshi take off his turtle shell and you saw this frail man beef up. It felt a lot like that. And I got to say, once again, the fight scene, absolutely incredible. Master Udon is thrown out of the window, through the building, over the cliff, down to the muck below. And Sandy and SpongeBob, as they make it to another boat, which is exactly like the boat that sunk on their way in. So it's possibly the same one. It's also possible that these boats that they use for Karate Island are just one-way experiences. They automatically sink whenever they make it to port. I have no idea. They seem like the worst boats possible. But as they leave Karate Island, SpongeBob apologizes to Sandy over the way he treated her over the course of the episode. Sandy apologizes. They're both good. They're fine. They're on the boat. They're leaving the island where another boat is coming into port. And here we see Squidward, where he's pronouncing himself as the King of Clarinets. He's arrived, and off in the distance, we see Master Udon standing on the same rocks with those other characters as we saw when SpongeBob and Sandy first came onto the island. In a way, the scam continues. Master Udon may have lost out on SpongeBob and Sandy, but we've got to keep this puppy rolling. We've got another guy coming up here. we got to get everything back to the way it was. King of Clarinets is on his way. This is Clarinet Island. Let's go, buddy. How's about another timeshare. Even if you miss out on a scam, you miss out on a person, a scammer is only just going to move on to another sucker. Think of Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Think of the way Eddie thinks of things. Just because one scam goes wrong, one mess up, he's just going to try again tomorrow. And that's, of course, what Master Udon, I imagine, is going to continually do for his life. Try to get people to come to this island Shower them in accolades, make them feel special, butter them up for the real main event of his timeshare shenanigans. And that, ladies and gentlemen of the Ready Crew, was Karate Island. An episode that I have to say, as I mentioned in the beginning, has increased in my appreciation and love of this episode over time. And it's not even from just re-watching it over and over and over again. It comes to the appreciation that went into the making of this episode, the references that they were making, becoming a fan of Bruce Lee and his work, and then going back and watching an episode like this. Do I think that it shouldn't be number one? Well, going back to 2006, I think there may have been a recency bias going on with that episode. But regardless of that, Here's an action-packed episode with some jokes thrown here and there and one of the most iconic Hollywood legends voicing a character in one of his posthumous roles. I completely understand why, in the moment of the best day ever, this was just number one. This is what people were talking about. This is what kids were voting for. And honestly, here we are all these years later, I have a new outlook on that day. I have a new outlook on that time of Karate Island coming up as number one in the best day ever marathon. The fact that 
Pat Morita got to be a part of what kids thought in that moment in time was the best episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. That's really cool. That is really cool. He is certainly missed, but the legacy that he has left behind lives on through roles like SpongeBob, through roles in movies like The Karate Kid and old shows like Happy Days, but even outside of seeing Pat Morita specifically on the screen, you can feel it in today's day and age with shows like Cobra Kai where his presence is felt through every instance of that show. It's impossible to watch Cobra Kai without thinking of Mr. Miyagi, and it's impossible of thinking of Mr. Miyagi without thinking of Pat Morita. Rest in peace, sir. Rest in peace to Bruce Lee, whose work helped laid the foundation for so many other projects in the world. There are those just getting into the world of martial arts now, still looking at the tapes of Bruce Lee and some of the movements and what he helped bring to the table of that space. So shout out to him. Rest in peace to Bruce Lee as well as Pat Morita. Thank you to all of those out there for the Ready Crew for joining me on another episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. You are always appreciated in my book, and I love each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. If you would like to follow the captain on any form of social media, you can do so on Twitter at I'm Ready Podcast, on Instagram at SpongeBob Podcast, and on YouTube. YouTube.com slash at the Captain Eric or click on the link in the podcast description below. Also down there, you'll find links for my other podcast this week in Nickelodeon history, which also drops on most conceivable podcasting platforms as well as YouTube.com, which features a full video version of the episode. Not only do you get to hear Captain Eric, you get to see Captain Eric for an entire podcast episode for the first time. That may be adopted into Season 5 of I'm Ready, but for now, I'm keeping this audio only. You don't have to worry about seeing this mug on YouTube for these episodes anytime soon. Maybe one day, but we'll see down the road. If you would like to write into the show, once again, spongepodpodcast at gmail.com. P-O-D podcast at, I'm not telling you how to spell podcast. It's sponge, P-O-D, and then the word podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, suggestions, or if you would like to just stop by and say hi, it's always appreciated. And if you would like to go the extra mile and show your support of Captain Eric other than subscribing to the YouTube channel, you can do so by clicking that Redbubble link in the podcast description below. There you'll find a bunch of Captain Eric logos that you can put on a multitude of different products like stickers and t-shirts. Anything that comes in from my projects go directly back into my projects, and it is always appreciated. I gotta tell you, ladies and gentlemen of the Ready Crew, it is always a great feeling when you can walk away from a podcast, a fresh, brand new podcast, with a feeling that this may be one of your best ever. I can't tell you that of what my best episode is, but this feeling of me sitting here, how I've been recording this entire episode, how it's been has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for joining me aboard. Please come again for another episode. And as always, please stay safe out there, be kind to one another, 
and come aboard again to another episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Sandy, I'm sorry I acted like a jerk back there. Thanks for saving me from buying a condo. Oh, shook, SpongeBob. That's what friends are for. I still have one question, though. Does this mean I'm not King of Karate anymore? You are in my book, SpongeBob. You are in my book. Now, let me tell you about real estate. It's all about location. I'm here! The King of Clarinets has arrived! <laughs>